0: Hi, I'm Nikki Schreer, and you're listening to The Insider, the Jazz Sessions spin-off series where I chat to jazz industry experts about the nuts and bolts of the business.
1: 1. Basic hip
0: Today's guest is the award-winning producer Matt Pearson. Matt's discography is studded with the brightest stars in contemporary jazz, Brad Meldow, Joshua Redman, Pat Metheny, Jane Monite, and countless others. He led Blue Notes marketing and A&R departments before taking up the post of running Jazz A&R for Warner Brothers Records. Matt continues to produce albums for musicians, ranging from Bria Skonberg and Pascual Grasso to Samara Joy. Matt, welcome to The Insider.
2: Hello, Nikki. Great. Great to be here.
0: Such a pleasure to chat to you, and I'm going to dive in with a question that I think maybe doesn't get discussed enough um, with people who would know, which is, if somebody asked you, what is the role of a producer, what would you say?
2: Well, Nikki, I think, I think that, that the funny thing <laughs> about it is that I've produced 130 whatever recordings, and every single one is different. Every single artist is different, and then every single project by every artist is different. So the role changes from project to project. It's you you fill whatever position is required to get the end result. So that end result by definition is realizing the artist's vision on time and on budget, is like the traditional, you know, definition of it. But depending on the artist, all of you know, all of the steps that go into that are all very, very different. So the job itself, in some cases, when I've worked with jazz musicians who have a working band, it's just check out the gigs, take some notes, give them a little input about what tunes to definitely record versus others, set up the session, be involved with the engineer and, and be involved in the technical decisions about microphones and setup and all that. Overseeing the recording session, giving input about takes, all of that kind of stuff. And then after the session's done, editing and mixing and mastering the project. With other kinds of projects, um, I work with a lot of vocalists, for example. It could happen a lot soon. And a lot of the discussion that takes place with those types of artists, and, and hopefully with all artists, is why? Why are you making this record? Is it... And if that purpose isn't to document your music in a way that connects with a listener and engages them emotionally, then you're doing it for the wrong reason. Or, 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 or if that's not the primary reason, then you need to consider your, your, you know, your priorities. Um, documenting your art is a very important thing. But if, no one's, if a tree falls in a forest and no one hears it, right? So if all you're going to do is document something, go ahead and record a gig and you've documented it and stick it on a shelf. But if your goal is what it should be with a recording, which is to reach an audience, there's gotta be a process of focus, edit, and direction to document something that's gonna move a listener. Um, In particular, a listener who doesn't know the code, a listener who isn't an insider, a listener who doesn't even know you. If you do that, all the people that know you that are insiders will also get it, but you won't be leading with what's most important, which is emotion and connection. So back to the, I mean, there's a lot of other stuff I could rant on about, about that process, but back to the main point, which is what is the role? That's the basic overall role. I think that um, one thing I'll answer with this, about this question is about my theory about how I look at what a recording actually is and the four elements of, of record production. There are basically four steps in my mind to making a recording. And I'm a big fan of filmmaking and I'm as influenced and inspired by filmmakers as I am on music. And the great directors all knew this. And basically the four steps are script, casting, shooting, and editing. Right? And it has to happen in that order. So it starts with script, which is what is the music you're going to record? What are you making? What story are you going to tell? Once you know that, then the discussion about the casting, which is who am I going to work with to document these stories and help tell these stories in a way that connects with my audience? In many cases, you've already, you already know who they are when you talk about the script, because they might be the people you regularly play with. Um, the other members of the cast, which are a producer, an engineer, those people, those, they might already be in place, but you have to take a step back from that in the beginning and really, really think about the script and what is the story I'm gonna tell and how am I gonna reach my listeners? Then once the casting is done, so the script, the casting, then shooting and film, which is documenting the music. So then comes that process of now that I know what it is, now that I know who's going to do it, this is going to be the place and the, pro- the process I can go through to document this music and make sure that the actual content exists. So I'm going to document the music I need. That can involve live to two track trio recording for three hours. It could, it could involve five days of tracking and five days of overdubs. It could involve any number of things. But all of that, as I said, comes from those first two steps. It's, it's predicated by what are the stories, who's telling the stories, and how can you best document that emotion and passion on tape, on a drive. Then the editing process, which is editing, mixing, master, which is get rid of all the bad, put all the good up front, uh, and... Tell the story in the best way so that what's up in front, front and center musically, and I'm, what's up, what's front and center audibly, is the story that's going to connect. So that's my long-winded answer and diversion to your (laughs) question.
0: Not that long winded, have you not met me? I ask questions that are so long winded that the guest looks at me blankly and says, can you just remind me what was the question? I was like, yeah, sorry, should have got to it. I like that four prong theory though, because I like that any musician who hears this can take that and actually work through those steps if they are thinking of recording and say, okay, what do I know? What do I need to spend more time working on? And how am I going to? And and again, as
2: I said, the first question has to be why. Why am I doing this? And if you just, you know, this is progressive. These steps are progressive. So if you determine why you're doing the recording in the first place, then that sets 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 an environment to move from, to start with, a foundation. Then you determine the script, the casting, based on that. So the focus continues to hone in. Then when you record, if you're still keeping all of that in mind progressively, then you're going to make the right decisions when you record
3: I make a date for golf, and you can bet your life it rains. Try to give a party, and the guy upstairs complains. Guess I'll go through life just catching colds and missing trains. Everything happens to me. I never miss a thing. I've had the measles and the mumps Every time I play an ace My partner always trumps Guess I'm just a fool Who never looks before she jumps Everything happens to me At first I thought that you could Break this jinx for me That love could turn the trick To end despair But now I just can't fool This head that thinks for me Mortgaged all my castles in the air I have telegraphed and phoned Sent an airmail special too Your answer was goodbye And there was even postage due Fell in love just once And then it had to be with you Everything happens to me
0: ask you two questions in terms of when you meet with an artist in the preliminary stages so maybe it's over a coffee and they're saying I'm thinking about doing this record and I'm thinking I would like to work with you first question is do you ever say to an artist I think this sounds great but I don't think I'm the right producer for you second question do you ever say to them I want to work with you on this but I think that you need to spend a little bit more time or we need to work together on getting you a better answer as to why you're not quite there yet.
2: Um, You both happen. Um, I certainly know my, my strengths and weaknesses. I know my limitations as a producer. Um, When people talk about producers, like if I talk to my daughters about what a producer is, they assume that a producer makes beats. So you know the, yeah and, and and not that i haven't been involved in recordings where there was programming involved which i have i just don't do it i hire someone who's a professional at that um, but yeah it, the first question is what is why what do you why are you recording and what is your vision for what you need to do and i get to know the artist personally and determine what's front and center important for them to 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 to, to document um it, there are definitely been cases where i've had the meeting i I like challenges. So it's not that often that I say, you know, I'm not your guy. It's more often that I'll say, here's what I think would make a lot of sense for you. Now, think about that. And if you're interested in working together, great. That happens a lot more because I think that that's more productive for me. Um, If I don't work with someone, I still want to have an opportunity to be a service. So, um, you know, I can't, not going to name any names, but there are artists that are well-known that I've met with and not worked with um, who, you know, what I had to say to them wasn't what they wanted to hear. Okay. I mean, if you get together with, with musicians and you have, if, if I have a certain, I'll give you an example, not of the artist, but the situation. Um, I go into a situation having a vision for what I think could make sense for that artist. It's flexible, but there are a couple of things usually that are kind of set for me so one of those is quality of musicians um and it's a when i say quality it's not just technical ability or experience or anything it is also relationships so with a lot of artists they have musicians they've worked with a lot and a musician you have a great simpatico relationship who's not a great musician could be very equal to a genius who you never met that decision And it's funny, with your project, we had a combination of those, right? We had someone you knew well, someone you didn't know as well, and it filled in based on uh, the songs that made sense for those people, and it fleshed out the way it did. Um, In this case, it'll be like I've met with artists where I've heard their band, and I'm like, this is a sad-ass band. And I know I I can hear what it is the artist is getting from them. Now, in some cases, what they're getting is comfort and safety, which is not good. I mean, it's good to have a certain amount of comfortable, being comfortable, but it also is important to surround yourself with people that kick your ass. You should never be the best musician in the room. So when I hear an artist who has a band that's weaker than them and is just loyal to them, then it's often the case where I'll say, listen, we need to talk about this. I understand what you're hearing if you wanna do a live record, with these guys, that could be cool. However, what about getting together with some other musicians and trying? Perhaps a combination. Maybe your piano player is someone who gives you something that knows your language inside and out that's really essential to you. But you understand for me though, if we're recording, we might wanna talk about a bass drum combination that's gonna bring to the table a whole other world of experience and inspire you to do something even fresher. So, those discussions have happened and I've not been hired. And then there's, there are times that I haven't hired. So, that, that's more likely going to happen. Um, there's also always, always that question with a lot of jazz artists about, about the script, about what are the tunes you want to record. And there are a lot of artists that, that feel strongly about their compositions. And very often in the jazz and jazz adjacent genres, Original songs are not always the most impactful because it's either very often, for example, it could be a jazz musician who's writing something that gives them an opportunity to improvise. So there are certain sorts of changes that they love to play over, a form they like to play over, a groove they like to play over. So they write changes in a groove and they come up with some melody for it. Well, to the listener, it's going to start with melody. The most important listener, which is the uninitiated listener. So, um, some of those songs. And the other thing that artists often do is their instincts is going to be to record something that might impress their friends and other musicians. In addition, many artists are not comfortable being um, vulnerable. And there might be a, an original composition, like artists have played for me, let's say there are five original tunes, and there'll be one of them that I'm like, that's the one. It just gets me. And I'll say, you got to record tune B. And they're like, oh, no, man, I wrote that about my ex-girlfriend. I'm like, I don't care what, what you wrote about it. You documented something emotionally that is going to connect with the listener. Okay, there might be a lyric that a lyricist had written that was about someone that they don't want to think about. And it's like, yeah, but you have to understand that that moment in time for you created a vulnerability and emotional connectiveness that can, the listener can connect with. Please consider that. So that, you know, so for that first one, yeah, I, I usually don't say I'm not the right guy. Um, if, if that's the case, I usually end up not having the meeting because I'll, I'll have an initial discussion or initial I'll look at their existing recordings. I'll think about it. And if it's someone who is a hip hop artist, um, you know, but I've worked with a lot of singer songwriters and soul artists and a lot of certainly jazz and Broadway and singer songwriter types, all that. Um, But, you know, if it's a rock band, they're not going to call me anyway. Now, the second thing you said, which is uh, um, saying to them they need some time to get it together.
0: Yeah. And do you step in and say, but I'll help you? Or do you say, go away, think about it and then come back to me?
2: What I usually offer in those kinds of situations is um, a lot of times artists need a deadline. So, uh, for example, there's an artist I'm going to be working with early next year. And this artist and I discussed doing a project together. And uh, he had a particular idea of the kinds of tunes. And it, see, it seems to make sense, but it's going to take time to do a lot of song research and a lot of work to find the right. He's not a composer. He's an interpreter. To find the right stories that he can personally connect with that seem as if he had written them. And that the songs fit together conceptually so at that point because i'm an A&R guy and i'm a song guy i would say let's spend six months getting this project together and then i'd work with them." but during that period it's like you go ahead and send me a playlist of 30 songs when you're ready i'll say i'll send you a playlist of 30 songs and let's settle on 15 we agree about so that whole pre-production process is important so so yeah um now Part B of that answer about do I tell them to spend time getting it together? If they're definitely not ready to make a record, if they're young, if they need some more time to figure out what they're going to do, if they can't decide between two or three different directions, and it's not clear to me what those might be, I have said, uh, let's get together. You know, what's your timeline? Let's bump that timeline another six months. Let's get together in four months. And let's see where we stand then. So, you know, there's a, there's a balance between setting it. Some artists need to be set a deadline and then they're going to work and get ready and make it happen. Some artists need more time to simmer, you know, so that answers the question.
0: Yeah, definitely does. And I mean, you make a very good case for people using an actual producer as opposed to and look, for some people, it works. That's all they need. But in terms of if somebody says, I want a producer, I'm going to ask my friend who's also a jazz musician and they'll produce, you're going to get a very different um, trajectory than you will get from somebody who is actually a producer and kind of, I guess, for lack of a better turn of phrase, not dabbling.
2: This is, this, is a, um, this is a challenge I'm always faced with, which is... Um, Especially in jazz, because people perceive the music as not needing a producer, or artists feel they don't need a producer. And inevitably, of course, and of course, I'll preface this by saying, of course, this would be my position. I'm a producer. Okay. So I've been in, the, in 100 plus situations and, and know what the producer can bring to the table. So I know the difference between, you know, there are records I've made and they're finished, and I listen to it and I say, if I hadn't done this, been involved, this is what this might have turned out to be. And then there are artists that I've talked to and not worked with that I see to finish recording. I go, see now, if I had been there, I could have helped in these ways. Now, first part of that, of that, that statement is it's not my job to put my stamp on a record. I'm not a producer with a sound. OK, I'm, I'm not Max Martin. I'm not, you know, uh, Nile Rodgers. Um, I'm not even uh, 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 what uh, any number of producers that have like their thing. I'm almost not even really Tommy La Puma, although Tommy is the closest thing. Tommy and Phil Ramone are, and Cree Taylor are kind of the closest thing to what I am coming from. But I'm also kind of coming from Steely Dan and Stevie Wonder and whatever. But the 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 role of the producer is. Um, is to realize the artist's vision, not their own vision. So I don't go into something with my sound in mind. And when I go into a project, I'm not trying to put my stamp on it. That's why if you listen to my discography, you could listen to a Joshua Redman or a Brad Melda record, then a Shayna Steele's record, or Robert Randolph's record, or Laura Benanti's record, or Samara Joy's record. You know, all, and it's a lot of different shit, Okay. Um, Becca Stevens, waitlist. like these are all different projects, but that's proof that I'm doing my job. And all I've done is try to work to the art with the artist and pull out of it what's special about them and put that front and center. Um, So, um, so. I think. How do I put this? Inevitably, an artist needs a translator. In my opinion. Now, since I'm a translator for a living, perhaps maybe that's why I would say that. However, if you speak French and you want to reach someone in English, you better have a translator. So what I'm talking about is, as an artist, generally speaking, an artist is the only person who hears their music the way they hear it. Their ears are the only ears of billions of people that are going to hear the music that way. For an artist to be so presumptuous, and I don't mean that in a negative way necessarily, presumptuous means for them to presume that any other person is going to hear their story the way they might hear it, is it doesn't make any sense. There has to be a process to say, okay, how can this story be heard by someone else? And you know, in any art form, that happens. In filmmaking, if you wrote the script, you need a director. Every now and then there's a writer director, you know, who can have a vision, a Wes Anderson, let's say, who's going to have that combination of vision, but they're going to need people around them to fill in the blanks. Orson Welles needed some people to fill in the blanks, right? So, you know, um, I think that that piece of it, and then many those blanks basically fill in those blanks is about how is this going to be translated to a list, to an audience? So yeah. if that, if that, addresses that. Again, I, the whole idea of getting a friend musician to, you know, the thing about musicians producing other musicians, there are cases where that can work. Um, However, uh, if you're a musician or an artist and you walk into a recording studio, your set of experiences are only your set of experiences. And sometimes there's an artist who's been on a lot of kinds of projects and a lot of kinds of things and knows how to be of service to a project and that can be functional. In my opinion, that function isn't really always producing. It could be co-writing or co-arranging. It could just being a member of the band. Um, it could be a set of ears you trust. But if you're gonna have a set of ears you trust and that set of ears is required to communicate your vision to an audience, you need to seriously consider the value of that those ears if it's another artist, are you saying, I want to really just reach this artist's audience? Are you going to say this artist self-produces and therefore they know how to reach an audience with their music? Perhaps they will with mine. Well, that doesn't make any sense because it's two different languages, right? So anyway, I mean, I'm, I'm very part of where I'm coming from. It, it's hard for me to balance. It's so funny. What I want to say is artists need direction, not Please, artist, call me. I'll direct you. you know? it's, it, this is not me saying, you know, please hire me or pe- you know, we producers, we poor producers are in the gutter. We need work. It's, this is a function that needs to be done. And if it isn't done, your record will be somewhere between, could very well between, be between average and shitty. And possibly, most importantly, it won't connect with a listener. It will only connect with the people who you already know, who are already going to get the music for free. We're already going to show up to your gigs and we're going to pat you on the back or give you a bro hug. That's not what you want. You want to be on a playlist on Spotify. You want to get called to be on a festival. that isn't just a jazz festival. You want to expand your audience. You want critics to write about you that aren't just the inside jazz guys saying he is the new voice. That sounds like an extension of, you know, Keith Jarrett and Cecil Taylor. It's like, who gives a shit? Are, is this person telling a story that to someone who doesn't know Cecil Taylor is? So, there.
0: No, no I agree with you. I like your analogies. And I, I do agree with you as well on the point that for some reason, jazz musicians often forego a producer. Sure, look, if there are financial constraints, like 100%, sure, uh, you know, it's understandable, but they often don't even consider it. If they're putting together a budget, if they're applying for a grant, They don't even factor that in. And um, I agree with you. People need direction. And I think that they'd be absolutely astounded if they had the opportunity to hear a project from concept to realization that they did without a producer and then did the same project, but with the guidance of a producer who was the right as a producer. I mean, wouldn't that be the ultimate- Well, there's that
2: cliche that's like- uh, I can't afford a producer, and the answer is you can't afford not to have a producer. Like that's and 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 the funny thing about the money thing is people make those assumptions without even asking. I mean i've I've done projects unbelievably reasonably, and I'm extremely uh, budget conscious. Uh, my goal is, I will more than pay for myself. By what by money I save and the, and the priorities that I set that make the dollars end up in the music. So,
0: and I and I can vouch for you because disclaimer I wasn't going to bring it up but Matt did reference it earlier that he produced an album um, for me once and yeah I think I paid you it was like two dollars <laughs> so it was, it was a real a steal. so just <laughs> his email address is and he is. He's well, the budget producer. I mean, part of, part of what's producers. funny
2: is this is one of the funny things about producing is when you talk to someone who hasn't really made a record before, they have no idea what it costs to make a record. So if you take a recording, for example, where an artist comes to the table and they say, I'm going to spend $10,000 making my record. And I've talked to them about what it is they want to do. Inevitably, if I'm going to get paid $2,000 of that, and this is totally hypothetical, okay? but if I were to go into that situation and say, you're going to spend $10,000 and I'm going to get $2,000, I would only do that if I knew they were going to get a $12,000 record. It. Okay. Like that, that's my goal. I'm not here to, I'm here to be added value. And if I'm not going to be added value, I shouldn't be involved. I need to prove my, myself. And that's not just, that's two different things. It's art and commerce. So on the, on the art side, I'm going to bring something to the table that's going to make it a better record, that's going to reach your listener, that's going to give my experience with a variety of kinds of artists and decades in the business, that's going to contribute to the process and give you information and direction. And on the same side, the commerce side, I'm going to make sure you're not wasting money, and that every dollar that's spent is directed towards better realizing your vision. So. That's why, anyway, it's funny that they say, "Well, I, I'm not going to call because I can't afford a producer." Maybe you can't. I mean, if you're making a thirty thousand dollar, a three thousand dollar record, and you're you're calling in your friends to play on the record, and you could afford six hours in a recording studio, and your friend's going to mix it, I can't be of any help there. I mean, I'm happy to meet with you and give you some feedback about your tunes, but you know.
0: A note of consulting or on the subject of consulting, you've done a lot of consulting for labels like Blue Note and Warner and Sony Masterworks um, and and r work. What has that work entailed? And how has it affected or informed any producing that you have done while you were there or after the fact?
2: Well, first of all, I mean, obviously I began after being a professional musician, I, I started at Blue Note Records at 28. And uh, when I, and I was at Blue Note for four years, then I was at Warner for 13 years. Um, uh, my goal was to get into the record industry because I felt that, first of all, my skill set was, uh, you know, that adapt- was what, what made sense. Like I was a musician, I'd been in recording studios, I worked in retail and radio and was a writer. And I, did a lot, I had a lot a skill set that I felt made it appropriate for me to get into A&R and producing. So I started working in the industry. What was the reason I did it, one of the reasons it was important for me to work at a label was I wanted to know the process. It was like uh, the devil you know, right? So since I had had experience in all, in all aspects of the industry, once I got into the business, what was fantastic was <clears throat> Bruce Lundvall gave me a lot of opportunities where I was A&R and marketing. I was producing. I was also doing marketing budgets. I was also overseeing artwork. I had promotion and publicity people working with me. I was understanding all the parts of the industry. So when I would make a recording, I'd have in mind all these people that are gonna have their hands on it after it's handed in. And when I got to Warner Brothers, eventually ended up running the jazz division. That's what I loved about it, because I had a staff of people handling marketing, promotion, publicity, uh, sales, all these different issues. And we were part of a large company where there was also video and international and all these other elements and eventually social media. So I, w- I, I never would wanna make a recording in a vacuum. So the thought would be when I make a record, I can't shut off my knowledge. So I w- I've always, from that point, always wanted to remain completely as up-to-date as possible about where the industry is, and so an artist will come to me and be able to know that I'm not just making a music, we're making a product and need to understand what's going on on the outside. After I left uh, Warner and the business started, shrink, it started shrinking and changing, and I've done a whole variety of consultancies with, you know, Mosaic and Pottery Barn and, and uh, Rhino, a lot of catalog stuff and then frontline stuff and, you know. And while I'm also independent producing. So whenever I would do a certain recording, when I worked with Kirk Whalem and we did a Donnie Hathaway project, this beautiful, you know, everything is everything project. My vision for that project was balancing art and commerce. It was certainly about this is music that works for Kirk Whalem. And this is musicians who work for Kirk. And this is the project that's good for him now. I think it will reach the audience. But how do I make sure that in doing that, we're going to deliver the label, the tools that they need to be able to reach people with that vision? So, all of each time, all along the process in in the business, I've tried to do that. One of the things I learned during Sony, the years I worked with Sony recently, which was right on the transition towards the total domination of streaming. And one of the things that I learned from that and what I, was inspired to do was two things artistically, that connected the dot between the mute, the art and commerce. It connected the dot between what is this project, what is this vision, and how can I take advantage of the current industry to reach the audience. One was uh, a project called New Masters, um, which we only we we I still hope to do more of them. We only did one of them, but it, what what it was was um, uh, New Masters reworks, and it was. Basically, cover songs. Uh, It was an EP of five singles that featured Keon Harold, Emmanuel Wilkins, Sullivan Fortner, Eric Harlan, Bernice Travis, and and Gillot Hexelman. And each one of the guys, it's six of them, we did six tunes. Each song was a current cover song. So it was Drake and Cardi B and Childish Gambino and stuff like that. And it was them within their vision and within a collaborative musical atmosphere with that group of people together realizing their vision on songs that were familiar pop songs. So then that got released through Sony Masterworks and they worked those tracks to streaming. And so the goal was without compromising their music, how can we get things placed on playlists? And then if it gets on a playlist, each of those artists' names are in the metadata and they could get directed back to those artists. Um, The other one that I'm working with now still, which is Pasquale Grasso, My feeling with Pasquale when I started working with him a few years ago was incredible. The greatest guitar player on the planet. It just is a jazz guitar player. Nothing can touch the guy. It's not just what he does technically. It's the passion and emotion in his playing, yada, yada, yada. And I knew he was a fantastic solo guitar player. So the vision was to sign him and record literally 50 solo guitar tracks. Five zero. We actually did 51. Um, and release them in EP form, five tracks at a time, every couple of months. And each couple of months, you put out the EP of Pasquale, so it was solo ballads, solo standards, solo monks, solo Bud Powell, okay, Uh, solo holiday, we did holiday songs. And each time, Sony would put out the five-track EP, have a target track come out beforehand, get it on playlists, and then within a couple of months, once that ran its course, we had another one. And another one, um, this is an idea of combining what I know about the history of the music business with what the business is now. Back in the 40s, in the fifties, and into the sixties, artists would make six, seven records a year. Like how many records did Johnny Mathis make in nineteen sixty? Right? You know how many recordings did Hank Mobley make in nineteen fifty nine? Like think about some of these artists. How many records did Miles make between nineteen fifty five and nineteen seventy? So. There is, if there, if it's possible, if the music's engaging, releasing more than a record every year and a half or two years can make sense. So I felt that about Pisquale because of the audience, and I felt that because of the streaming, the non-physical market, we could afford to do this and we could build up repertoire on the platforms that the cumulative effect would be substantial. So by the that time helped.
0: Sorry, how many sessions did it take to record the 51 solo
2: guitar tracks? I believe tracks? it was 5. It ended up being 5. Four or 5, four and a half, something like that. I can't remember. You know, I mean, each day and again, when we went in, we wouldn't go in and do a session of all ballads. Like the idea was we'd go in and we'd record a dozen songs. And he'd prepare those dozen songs and they would be from each of the categories. But once we recorded it all, then we release them in focused you know, meals, right? So the point is that by the time it got to the end of that last uh, uh, solo guitar project, we're over we're over ten million streams with Pasquale Grasso. Now, that's a big number in the jazz world. Now, it is now it is cumulative over all of those tracks. But what is proof of is that not only did a few of the tracks, a few of them, like we did, what are you doing New Year's Eve on the holiday project that accounts for, you know, over 20% of the streams because it got on a couple of holiday playlists. Mm-hmm. But what we also know is by getting on those holiday playlists, that song got people to click through and check out Pasquale Russell, whether it was a holiday EP and then maybe the ballads. So it built this infrastructure for him that cumulatively have ad- has added up to a body of work musically that people are talking about. So we're feeding the jazz market and showing how great he is in documenting his music, showing a commitment to his art, but at the same time creating enough content that builds this total number of streams worldwide. So that's the case that we're where the business helped the a and the a has helped the business. So now the new record, which just came out a couple of weeks ago, which is Pasquale Plays Duke, is a Duke Ellington co- record. It has five solo guitar tracks on it, but it also has five songs with this trio that are trio songs. And it's got a guest vocal by Samara Joy and a guest vocal by, by Sheila Jordan. So now it's all of a sudden, after all of this, there's a full album of Pasquale doing a lot of different things to deliver. Not in the, So now we've got people's focus. We've got solo stuff for if what you came for was the solo stuff. we still give you that. But most importantly through all of this is every single thing we've done has, has led with his talent and who he is as an artist. So anyway, very sorry about very long winded answer, but what it is is once in, in my communication with Sony still, and with friends of mine that are in the industry with other companies and staying in touch with, whether it's Lydia Lehman or Don Lukoff or Neil Sapper or other people in the industry that have ridden the wave as I have and are still in it. The last 10 years, like we're not sitting here today doing what we did 10 years ago. So that's my goal. I want to be able to sit down with an artist and say, at the end of the day, someone's going to have to hear this music. And unless you face the fact that people aren't buying CDs anymore, unless it's at your gigs, you need to consider how will this music be consumed, in what platform will it be exposed, and how will people generate revenue for you? And it's all about streaming. To a certain degree, it's direct to fan stuff, whether that's the Patreons or, you know, those those are the world, um, GoFundmes and those things, or if it's licensing and you know, in sync. Um, and most importantly, at the end of the day, it's gigs. So how can you get your music out there in a way that helps get you better gigs? And how can you show up at that gig and present something that people want after the gig? So that whether they walk away with an autographed CD or vinyl, or after the gig, they add your tracks to their regular playlists and share it with their friends. How do you make it sticky? Because that's the problem in the last 10 years with jazz. Jazz used to be this obsessive, addictive thing where you go to the store and you get the physical and you love it and you open it up and you smell the vinyl and you read the liner notes and ah, it's like this thing that can still happen but by and large music is very passive these days so our goal is how do we transition it back into being an active experience for the listener that it's not just passive listening and back the last thing i'll say about this which is when you talk about streaming that's the most important issue we deal with with streaming yes you can get you know, 10 million streams on a track somewhere if you get on the right playlist. But that's if that's a passive nighttime people fall asleep to it playlist, it's not sticky for your career. If you get um, 500,000 streams on a very active playlist, that's going to mean a lot more for you. You might not make as much money from those streams, but you know that that audience is going to be active and you can see the engagement with that audience and you can feed them more content that's going to get them spreading the word for you and being part of your team out there.
0: I think that Pasquale EP strategy thing is absolutely fascinating. Would you try that strategy with another artist now that you've done it with him? And would you know? Would Sony be like, "Cool, yeah, okay, cool, proven track record there. Let's do it again."
2: Well, I, no, I, I, I personally feel that some iteration of that strategy should be happening with every great jazz artist. Okay, an artist who I'm not working with, who I would love to work with, for example. Um, and this is jumping to a conclusion about this artist would want to do this. But if I look at an artist like, let's say, Cecilia McLaurin-Salvan, okay? And again, I, love, I know her, I love her. It's nothing about what she is or isn't doing. This is just to say, let's pick an artist and say, okay, as an a person and producer, and I look at an artist like this, I say, okay, there are two layers of an artist's career from a recording standpoint. If it's an artist of the great quality, there's the documenting of the vision, which is extremely important. So this, and, and let me put Cecile aside. An artist like that um, would have, and the same thing is like you know if we look at Matheny or Joshua Redman, or you know, and it should be the case with someone like VJ Iyer. It's absolutely important to document the art you're hearing and realize artistic vision, even if it's something that only you and a smaller circle will embrace. I'm not saying don't do that, but it's also extremely important to understand the responsibility that's on you as a self, as an artist, to expand your reach and expand your audience without compromise. So if I look at an artist who's a vocal interpreter, I say, well, wait a minute, Sarah Vaughn and Ella and Billy, they made four records a year easily. Like, why wouldn't you also go in the studio for a day or two, twice a year and interpret a bunch of songs that you know, that you love stories. You can tell with musicians you're connected with and release those as EPs as singles, like put out a fairly consistent flow of content. You don't have to, it's not a world where you still have to create physical product and, and do all that artwork and ship it out to retail and like releasing a music is the easiest thing in the fucking world right now. So why would you not document more music and use it as a tool without compromise? I keep saying, but that's the point of it. Just cause it's effective marketing doesn't mean it's a compromise. Right? So if you find a way to be real and present it to an audience and it's something they can, they can absorb, it can be your shake shack, right? Yeah. Danny Meyer created Shake Shack. Now, it's not necessarily true that people go to Shake Shack are then going to go to Union Square Cafe or get Tavern or whatever. The point is that the quality of the food and the, and the, the marketability of it and the stickiness of that to bring people in and give them something they want without compromise is still realizing your vision. So many artists, I think, would be well served to consider this kind of approach, not just this kind of approach. I mean, there are other things to do, but because of the way streaming works, I think that it offers an opportunity to do that, to do singles, to do EPs, to do conceptual recordings, to do collaborations. There are a lot of those kinds of things. And if the only challenge you've got is coming up with a vision for your career and the career arc and the timing of each of these issues, and how are you going to balance the flow of the product with exposure to certain audiences and and how are you going to feed your core audience with what they want while at the same time reaching another audience. That's the gig. That's the job of being an artist today. And if what you want is to just do whatever music you want to do and apply for a grant and get a grant and go play at a museum somewhere and be a part of subscription series, that's all really great. But the reason why you can't do that and also expand your audience. Like I would love to go, what I love, I've seen a bunch of gigs where it's been part of um, like a, a Performing Arts Center subscription series concert, right? And you can always tell the ones where the artists are doing the right work. So I'll go to one and it'll be everyone around me, I know that they come to all the records in the series concerts in the series. And they're all of it, they're all just the local art supporters from that community. And that's great. But those aren't people necessarily connecting with the audience, with the artist. Those are people that are a little more passive. It's not a hard ticket. But when I go to one of those gigs, like I'd go to a ranky tanky gig, and which is a band that I love that plays gala music, that's they're they're fucking great in some performing arts center in the middle of New Jersey. I went to see them. And it was just this college gig with us as part of a subscription series. Half the audience were the regulars and half of them were these other people that knew who the band was and were interested in checking out something new. It was like, that's the ticket. That's your your goal is that balance where yeah, you're gonna have to pay the bills, but how are you building a real audience? How are you balancing the passive with the, with the active audience? So, so, I'm ranting.
0: No, not ranting. I think it's fascinating. And I think it's a, I think it's a really great idea. I'm sitting here thinking, how do I formulate a grant application to release, you know, 10 EPs of five subs each. And I'm thinking, you know, do I want to interpret? Can I interpret? Am I being lazy? If I'm not. <laughs> so I, it's good food for thought.
2: I mean, at the the, at the risk of, of of getting too into the funny thing, like, and I'll make an example of if you don't mind of your the project we worked on together. Perfect. That's a project that, if we did that today, we could consider of releasing it as three separate EPs. Totally. And we before each one of them releasing a single digitally, pa- focused to try to get on certain playlists. You know, whether that's a massive attack cover or something else like, you know, marketing it and releasing it in that way and then still do us do a physical one if you want to of the whole thing together. Yeah. But from a promotion, marketing, streaming standpoint, that's content that could be positioned much more effectively today than when you release the album.
0: So I just do want to tell listeners because besides the fact that it's my album and Matt produced it, conceptually, it's. It does tie into what you're saying, and that is such an interesting, that's the comparison that most artists don't have the luxury of making, you know, going back, revisiting and saying, well, how would we do this today? But it was voice piano duets, three pianists, and each pianist duetted on, I think, four tunes, and I think there were 12 tunes in total, but each pianist... Covered a song that was an original, a song that was a jazz standard reimagined, often too slow, um, and also <laughs> that's on me, <laughs> terrible tempo setter for life, uh, and also a cover of a song that was a popular song. So Matt referenced Massive Attack, there was the Beatles, um, there was Lubby Sifri. So they each got one of those. So it it would make a really interesting yeah rollout if we split it into three EPs or something.
2: And you, could, yeah, and you could split it as the covers, the jazz tunes, the, you know, you are by the player. You can do any number of things. It's, it's funny because it's not that, um, I mean, if I look back on many of the records that I produced over the years, see, this is one of those cases where, whether I go back to Becca Stevens' wait list and say, you know, if we made that recording today, we could consider it as do a 40 minute album of the original material and a 28 minute EP of the covers and release them separately. I could look back at Joshua Redman, Wish. And that's a record that was, you know, I won't go into the whole story, but the idea of his initial recording was half the record would be with his band and half would be with this all-star band with Matheny, Billy and Charlie Hayden. Well, we went in the studio with Billy, Charlie and Pat We did a week at the Vanguard. I recorded one day with just a stereo mic hanging above the band. Then we went into the studio and recorded the album. And there was, it was about 35 minutes of music or 40 minutes. I don't remember exactly, but it was not a full album worth of material. But the point was, that was only going to be half the record. Then we went in and recorded with his band in a couple of different settings. And we ended up recording like 70 minutes worth of music. So we said, you know, wait a minute why don't we release your band first with, you know, that's a full album worth of stuff and then put out wish. And since I recorded live at the Vanguard with this stereo, mic, let's master those tracks. We'll do the wish studio recordings with two live tracks on the record. And there you have a full record. So there we had his record was with a couple of different bands. Then wish was with this band and the live stuff. If that happened today, we absolutely would likely be having a whole other discussion. And instead of putting these two records out six months apart, which at that point was rare in jazz, and it was really effective in launching his career with the solo record, with the self-titled album, Wish, and then Mood Swing, we could have today, we would put out, well, here's an EP of him with the trio. Then here's an EP of him with his band playing original material. Then here is the wish band with pat charlie and billy here's live wish all that could come out in bits and it would snowball it would feed off of each other it would build it would interact with an audience and then when it comes to whether or not to do a physical product you'd have a bunch of options do some 10 inch vinyl do an lp do a box set you know any number of things you could do for the hardcore fans but you would have by the end of that Built the hard hardcore fan base and had an audience to sell that physical shit to. So I think looking back, we can realize that yes, things have changed a lot, but in reality, it's opened up many opportunities that given the chance, we could be very, very creative and commercially successful taking advantage of without compromise. So that's that's the ticket.
4: Across this Mr. It's time to talk I need a room to walk See if there's something wrong with your plan. Stay right where I am Across this line My people been living for a whole lot longer Than you walk there And from what we can tell of your Customs, Mr. Forgive me for saying You got a lot to learn Before you can say we got
0: day i'm just such a nerd for the the strategizing and the ways that one can balance sort of artistic authenticity and integrity and you know what's on your wish list with something that is viable and ultimately does something for one career-wise because it is about moving forward and that means
2: and as we said every project is different every artist is different i mean and these things happen in a variety of ways i mean I'm working with a vocalist named Samara Joy, and this is a case where I heard her. I was one of the judges at the Sarah Vaughan competition two years ago, and she ended up winning the competition. And and Dee Dee Bridgewater and McBride and Jay Monheit and I were judges, and and it was part of it with her was she was very young. She was 19 at that time, and it's like, well, should she win this, you know, because will it go to her head or this and that? It's like, well, no, I mean, she was that talented, and it was like, this makes sense. And what I said to her in the beginning when I met her at that time was take your time. You're in college. Now you're at purchase university, finish school, work with other musicians and all of this. Well, then eventually within a year, we were talking about making a record. We said, you know what, let's record, you know, that was during the pandemic and it was, this is low pressure. now. This isn't about you want a competition, you sign with a label. There's all this expectation. You've got a whole team of people kicking ass to try to, take advantage of this experience. Like, no, let's just document what you're doing. Let's make a really good record that you can be very comfortable doing, and let's get you started. And and by the time we're to the other side of this pandemic, we can fold it out in a reasonable pace. And so, you know, we made a record with Pasquale Grasso and and Ari Rowland and Kenny Washington. And although that trio hadn't really played together, Kenny was from Jazz History teacher at Purchase. Pasquale taught at Purchase and she knew Pasquale. I worked with Pasquale. Pasquale and Ari have played together for, for 15 years. So we were able to present a very comfortable experience for her where she could just go in and be comfortable doing the tunes she could sing. Um, worked, worked a bit on the repertoire to try to make sure there was some focus. And there were songs that, I could, that you could believe a 21-year-old singing, you know, a 21-year-old singing in 2021, right? I um, mean, then we made the record and it's been I won't say it's a soft launch, but, you know, we got a distrib- we got a label based whirlwind recordings from the UK to put it out. We've got, you know, they're doing a, a job hiring publicists and getting us out there, a lot of social media, some videos and gradually getting to a point where she's building up a following. And by next summer, she'll be on the jazz festivals. So these, th- these things come to you and you say, well, what's going to be the right choice for this person? And how do you balance the person and the art with the business and be of service to them? You know, and that's, I think that's one of the things that a lot of people in my kind of job need to always remind themselves of, how can they be of service to the artist? It's not about you. It's about what can you bring to the table that's going to help that artist build their audience. So I know you were trying to wrap up and I went on again. So
0: no, no, no. But I think that's such a lovely, um, thought on which to end because again I also forget about the fact that maybe someone will listen to this and they're an aspiring producer and they're studying whatever at university and they'll come away with this being like oh I never thought about it like that oh I'd really like to try and you know do that or learn about that so um just remember me when you get emails and you start mentoring young producers (laughs) uh because I'd like commission
2: so well 10% of nothing is nothing.
0: (laughs) Well, I mean, considering that I paid you $2 to produce my album, I'd say we're even. It's fine.
2: That's funny. One other thing I was going to say really quickly, which is you mentioned that thing about having coffee. I mean, that's one of those funny things I have. Like, there are people that call and say, hey, can I get together with you? I'll buy you a cup of coffee. I want to bend your ear. And I usually end up kind of doing it, but then it's an awkward conversation always because And this is not to say that I've got proprietary information that's exclusive to my experience, but at the same time, I'm like, you know, I don't really want to get together with you and tell you how to do what I do so you can do it and not hire me. And and that that isn't because isn't mainly because I I want the work. It's because um, you know, handing a chainsaw to a five-year-old isn't gonna end up cutting down trees, right? That's the thing. It's like my, my, you know, I'd like to think that my life experience and what my, you know, skill set is, is what I bring to the table. It's not just the answers to those questions. It's actually in the, the you know, it's, it's in the proof of the actual happening. It's the situation comes up and you respond to that situation and you provide the service at that time. So. So, yeah, that's
0: it. Nothing but sage wisdom and the best of food and movie analogies from Matt Pearson. (laughs) (laughs) I can't thank you enough, Matt, for talking to me for The Insider and, yeah, just giving us time and wisdom.
2: It's been a great pleasure. I hope to stay in touch. And and please, if anyone wants to reach out, they can find me.
5: Little bird, little bird, little bird, what you hear? juice concentrate crossword puzzles start to grate. one cross, four letter word it's just not sitting little bird little bird little bird what do you see picture perfect scene two tone the garden's wearing oak door it's hiding something it's trying too hard hiding something it's trying too
3: hard the bird.
0: Thanks to this week's guest, Matt Pearson, for coming on the show and sharing his valuable insights. I will make a note of all tracks played during today's episode in the show notes for the episode, as well as any other links mentioned during conversation. The Insider is a spin-off series to the jazz session that I created in order to chat to jazz industry experts about the work that they do and the musicians who inspire them. The Insider is available to Patreon members at the $10 per month tier in advance of the episodes being available to the public on all podcast platforms. If you want to support the podcast, the best way to do that is to head to thejazzsession.com/join. Thejazzsession.com/join to find out how you can become a patron today. Feel free to rate, review, subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and find me on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram. Check out the Jazz Sessions YouTube channel for video excerpts of interviews with this season's guests. Thank you for listening. I'm Nikki Schrera, and I'll see you soon.